In the Reading Corner today, I'm very pleased to be welcoming Ellen Caldicott. Ellen is a writer for children and young people. Her debut novel with the intriguing title How Kirsty Jenkins Stole the Elephant was published in 2009. Further novels followed How Ali Ferguson Saved Houdini, Operation Eiffel Tower, The Mystery of Wickworth Manor, the Great Ice Cream Heist, and these were followed by a series of stories about a group of friends called the Marsh Road Mysteries. Ellen's work is characterised by mystery, an adventurous spirit, and a warm, honest depiction, quite often of non-traditional families, where the word family is open to new interpretations. Once a graduate of the Bath Spa MA in writing for young people, Ellen is now Associate Lecturer on the course. Her current PhD, through practice, is funded with support from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And I quote here where it says she's interested in the opportunities of transnational and transcultural writing, which I think is evidenced in her forthcoming novel, The Short Knife. Uh, welcome, Ellen. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. And I think maybe we need to start by uh, thinking about the connections between your PhD and this novel. I'm assuming that they're integrated and very closely related. Yeah, absolutely. So the PhD, which I've um, I've completed now, um, the short knife made up 80% of my submission and then I wrote another um, contextualising piece so that the, the point of that contextualising piece was to make explicit some of the knowledge that is implicit in the novel itself so yeah the, the novel and the, the PhD research were one and the same actually. Fantastic I actually feel that I need to write read the supporting uh, piece as well. <laughs> Maybe we could talk about that a little bit later as we delve deeper into the novel mm -hmm. but to start could you set the story up for us? Sure so um, it's set in the fifth century in Britain which was a really tumultuous time um, the end of the Roman Empire and the collapse of that of civic society um, and the, the arrival, I don't want to use a more contentious word, the arrival of Anglo-Saxons um, into the British Isles. And in the novel we meet a girl who considers herself Romano-British um, and she meets Saxons for the first time and um, uh, tries to negotiate a place for herself as a, as a, as a girl, as a British girl when the society around her has got really no place for somebody like that to be safe. And it's set um, in the years AD 454 to 455. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything specific about those years in particular or was this just a date plucked from that period? <laughs> um, it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. I wanted the collapse of Rome to be done. So, um, that kind of formally happened if, in, in the way that we, you know, we can know anything about a time with so little um, documentary evidence. That happened in 410. And so I wanted the girls to be growing up completely detached from Rome. You know, they've never been there. They've never met any true Romans, in inverted commas. But I wanted the generation above them to still have, the, have that memory of what we once were. Um, and so it was important for me to there, for there to be a generational divide between 
the girls meeting the Saxons and then the, the, the adults in, in her family and the adults around her, their relationship with the newcomers. Um, so it's, it's a slightly arbitrary date, but set in a period where two generations would have had very different experiences of British history. Mm. And we obviously learn so much through your narrator. Well, we learn everything through your narrator, May. Um, she's responsible for us coming to understand the setting, the culture, um, the language. She has a very unique voice. Mm -hmm. How did you go about finding that voice? It was quite a difficult task. So the reason that I wanted, the reason that this piece became a PhD was because I knew that I wanted the voice to be doing something quite complicated and I knew that it would take me time and the the amount of time that you get to write a book if it's for an academic project was much more practical for what I wanted to do so I spent the first year just trying to find and create a voice for her um, the way that she speaks is based on contemporary Welsh um, because the, though she's Romano-British, she comes from the western side of the country, which was a little bit less influenced um, by Latin. So um, she speaks a kind of uh, a, a version of Old Welsh. And so I wanted to try and create that somehow. Um, so I took contemporary Welsh and I used as much as I could possibly squeeze into the English of the book. So the book is written in English. People who speak English can read it without any problem whatsoever. Um, but there is an element that, in fact, there's quite a few different elements taken from the Welsh language and kind of made to wear the clothes of English, if you see what I mean. So the bones are in some ways Welsh. And that took a really long time. I knew that that's what I wanted to do but I didn't know how I was going to do it. Um, so that's why it took me a year of just writing and writing and writing and thinking, well, what if, they, what if I tried this? What if I tried that? Um, and all kinds of things ended up filtering through and being, being the right artistic choice and loads of things got thrown away. Um, so I did try using Welsh phonemes, I considered for a while and phonemes and graphemes. Um, and it was unreadable and um, I tried using a lot more Welsh vocabulary to begin with so yeah it took a while. So are you a Welsh speaker Ellen? Yeah um, I grew up in North Wales and, and my family are bilingual um, and I grew up bilingual as well. Mm. How much record do we have of this older Welsh or is it is it an artistic creation? It's an artistic creation. So old Welsh, you know, there are people in university settings who study and read old Welsh just in the same way that there are people who study and read old English. Um, but it's not the, you know, Welsh is an evolving language in just the same way as, as English is. So I am not trying to recreate Old Welsh. That was a step too far for the amount of, of, of time and brain space and talent that I had. Um, so it's, it's using contemporary Welsh as an avatar, really, for the fact that you know, so much of the British Isles was more um, Welsh-speaking at one point, or at least you know, a version of Celtic languages were much more widely spoken than they are now. 
Absolutely fascinating. I think maybe um, it would be good to get a sense of that. Um, and I know that you said that you would read a little bit for mm. us. This comes from fairly on in, early on in the novel, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much at the beginning where we meet. Um, we meet Mai and her sister Harv and um, Tad is the Welsh name for dad. So um, you might need to know that, that Tad means dad. Trouble came with the frosts of dying autumn. Our farm lay too close to the road, Harv said. It brought naught but worry. Our father was different. Tard had been born in better times when this land was ruled by far-off emperors. He remembered the tramping march of men, the Roman army plumed under eagles. He was full of stories of adventure and glory and great men and gods born in stables. Tard was up on the top field when the danger arrived. Three men. Only me and Rapcat were there to watch them walk. I don't know where Harv had got to that day. Outside in the hall in the farmyard, me and the cat stood and I saw. Who's that cat? I whispered. The men made raucous calls as they strolled Lindy Long farmwards, swinging their walking sticks. Are they friend or foe? I asked Cat. As they got close, I saw there was no real need of the question. No travellers who walked with such rolling ease could be friendly. The beat of my blood quickened as they came closer. Should I leave the farm empty while I ran up the hill to fetch Tard, or stay but let Tard delay untold? I was caught between the devil and his sty. They were near our yard now. They wore flapping layers of brown like corpse bird feathers. Brown hair knotted and tangled atop nut-tanned skin. Mud men, I thought, spawned in road ditches. Boradabach, the man who led them, spoke the correct greeting but accented strangely. The sound that should have rolled was flat as floodplains. He had clearly learned a phrase in thick-tongued adulthood, Saxon. I said nothing. The cat stalked away. I never saw her again. Oh, and that really sets up uh, this feeling of foreboding. And in fact, mm. it is a novel in which there's a lot of uh, tension and aggression. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, lots to, uh, lots to keep the plot moving and keep us excited. I was fascinated as well. You've talked about language mm -hmm. and it took you a year to, to get the voice right. I was fascinated by your historical detail architecture, animals, food, plants. And mm -hmm. it put me in mind of uh, Geoffrey Treese, who once wrote about how a young reader had written to him to say that his inclusion of a wild rabbit in an early medieval novel was inaccurate mm -hmm. because rabbits were brought to the UK, allegedly, by the Normans. How important is it to you to get those details right? Pretty important, I think. Um... I'm sure that there will be people sending me rabbit-based emails. I, I will have made mistakes, um, but I did spend um, a lot of time researching the details, and not just for accuracy's sake, but I think for the quality of the writing. It was important for me to try and experience um, as much of that world as I could. So. Um, for example, I went to a place called um, Westow that is a recreated Anglo-Saxon village and I was there with my notebook and my camera and I was uh, 
trying to make sure that I wasn't introducing things that shouldn't be there and avoiding anachronisms and so on. But I think it was also inspirational in terms of the, 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 the writing itself to try and spend time emptying my mind of my current self and trying to imagine what it would have been like. Um, and I'm just not you know, I'm not saying that I have achieved it. I think it's impossible to put yourself in that, in the mindset of people who are, you know, 100, uh, 1500 years ago. Um, but it was really evocative for me to do that. And I'm really glad that I did. I love that idea of it being the research is there for the quality of the writing, not just for the accuracy. Mm -hmm. and certainly when I read uh, the novel, there was just that through the, the digging of the foundations for the buildings, it just felt that you were present and therefore I felt present when I was reading the novel as well. That's good. <laughs> um, May actually dreams of being a warrior, a little bit like her heroine. And I, I realise I've been getting my pronunciation of all these characters wrong. So you're going to correct me in a moment. <laughs> uh, the Romans called her Boudicca. Uh, uh -huh. We used to call her Bodicea when we were at yeah. school, and the Welsh is... Physic. <laughs> I am not worried about how people read these names. There, there, there were some conversations that we had about whether to include a, a glossary or not, because there are names that are definitely very Welsh and very hard to even imagine how... So, so um, one of the characters is called Gorfeirn, and we had... A conversation about whether I should change that and make it something a bit more anglified and then I realized I don't actually mind it's written and so any noise that comes into a reader's head is totally fine it has it it, it doesn't matter it didn't in any way interfere with my enjoyment uh, of the story oh, uh, but I am pleased to have heard you pronounce it and I'll go away and practice but <laughs> in the meantime I was going to say that she dreams of being this this warrior doesn't she she's almost mm -hmm. like a heroine for her um, and she learns in a way through this story that she doesn't have to be that warrior to make a difference hmm. yeah the the idea of um, you know the role of girls and women in any era is always really interesting um, but in this era in particular, I, so few stories have been you know, passed down to us. We know of so few women from this period um, that it was really important for me to think about what different kinds of women and girls there, there might have been and what their dreams are like. So there's no, I'm hoping that there's no sense of one kind of homogenous way of being a, a girl. There are, there are three or four quite different characters in this piece and I think that collectively they they represent voices whose stories just haven't survived and and I yeah my was I wanted her to know about female warriors and to maybe dream of that but actually I, I don't know how accessible it would have been for girls to become warriors um, and we see that a lot in fantasy you know there are loads of female fantasy warrior women and I, it, it doesn't feel like a realistic idea of of what a person could could have been in those times or in even in you know parallel fantasy universes that people create i'm not entirely convinced by the warrior-ness always um and so i wanted her to have this dream uh, but actually come to negotiate 
her own reality a little bit more through what, what can a woman actually be and what can a girl hope to achieve with her life. And yet um, you do also seed the idea that it's possible for women to be leaders. So there's the possibility at some point of her, uh, of her sister um, taking on more of a leadership role. Yeah, I mean, I, her sister's an interesting one. Um, I, I, had, I had some trouble with half because she initially was a little bit more beguiling than than she is now and that that she was that she used her gender a little bit more in terms of manipulating the men around her um and i i was a bit uncomfortable with that and so i may we i switched her a little bit to make her a bit more cunning a bit more um you know she's more of a chess player in the world and, and she can predict what people will do and that, that you know lends itself to to her becoming a leader and, and, and that possibility does open up for her um, and I like to think that she did go on to to lead a little bit more in her own right after this book's finished I, I haven't written any further stories for them but in my mind Harve does well for herself in the future. The men generally in uh, the novel don't come off too well um, mm. whether they are Romano British or indeed Saxon there's mm -hmm. perhaps more similarity between them than there is difference yeah and uh, it's certainly a more brutal novel in many ways than anything else that you've written uh, before mm -hmm. um, what was the experience of writing some of that like well I, I don't I don't want to give away too much of the ending but but this story is inspired by a folk tale that I knew growing up. Um, so some of the finale was a story that I was familiar with in my childhood. And Gustavon that I mentioned earlier, there are kind of monuments to him in North Wales and little plaques about, you know, this is where he was meant to have lived and so on and so forth. So um, he's part of the uh, storytelling tradition that I grew up with. And I, once you're kind of, you've you've embraced a plot then you can't deviate from it too much so it is different to the writing that i've done before um but i think it was a it's it's been a good challenge for me to take something quite traditional and to to, to play with it a bit and to to modernize it and to, and for me to look at it from the perspective of people whose you know stories have not made it through the generations um, so, you know, in that sense, it does have a share a bit of DNA with the writing that I've done before in terms of representation um, of perhaps communities that don't get represented as, as much. What if we could talk a little bit about the way in which it's written? It's a split narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm just interested in how that uh, came about in the process. Um, as a reader, that split narrative creates a sense of mystery and mm -hmm. consequently it propels the plot forward, um, yeah. I think. Uh, was it always going to be written like that or was it an epiphanal moment or did it just come through experimentation? I wanted it to, to work like that because I knew what the finale was going to be. So it was always planned that way. I knew what the finale was going to be and the finale uh, because it comes from this folk story and the finale is very focused around the active actions of the men um, and just thinking in terms of structurally 
I didn't want to end the book with the stories of the men playing out, and, you know, these people that had such an impact on my book, but for whom she is nothing. You know, she's, she doesn't really register in their stories, though their stories are very influential on hers. Um, I didn't want to end with them and then give a short postscript to what happens afterwards because if you think about you know our standard narrative structure you have the grand finale and then you have the sort of the epilogue where you get to see what the you know what the new situation is like and that epilogue just wasn't going to be long enough for me to continue to tell my story so by doing a split narrative I could do a before and after and still have the finale in the right place structurally but almost cheat extra time um, so that I could continue to tell the girl's story beyond that point. Fascinating. Mm. Um, you've written about, or, or I think it was in the description of your PhD, about the opportunities and tensions of transnational and transcultural writing. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what you see those opportunities to be and what the tensions are. <laughs> Yes, yes. Now, there's a lot of that in my contextualising um, essay, and I probably should pick some of that out to, to share, because there's a lot to say. Um, so, creatively, it's really great. Uh, I mean, that's the opportunity, really, is that when I was creating Mai's voice, I had so much creative resources to draw on that, you know, a few people had drawn on before. I mean, there were there have been other people who've used Welsh to inspire English, um, but not so many, and then it's something that we're very familiar with. So I did things like um, I, I got a dictionary of idioms and I translated the dictionary um, and I put all of the idioms into, into literal English. And so that meant that I had this database of imagery and um, you know, phrasing that once you've understood it and you've thought about it for a while, you go, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But it's not necessarily something you would generate from, you know, from, from a cold starting position. Um, so having this language to draw on gave me huge creative opportunities. And then the, the tensions are, are, you know, as, as so often is the case, come down to questions of ownership of culture. Um, I had protracted and quite difficult conversations with with various people actually um, about who I was doing this for whether it was right to be diluting was I diluting Welsh was it right to be diluting Welsh so on and so forth um, one of my supervisors said to me you know English and Welsh are in a battle so one-sided one lot don't even know that they're fighting <laughs> so yeah when you have something like that and, and then there's this sense of you know i was given the language my parents made a conscious decision to to maintain the language in my generation um it was a gift and yet here i was kind of taking it apart and playing with it and presenting it to a whole different community for whom it does not have the emotional and cultural and historical connections that the speakers of it have. I just want to remind everybody that we're speaking here about the writing of books for young people and it just goes to show how much consideration and thought um, goes into that process 
Um, I wondered the extent to which giving so much depth of thought can make a writer impotent and not want to write. Yeah, I'm actually quite bad at thinking without a pen. I find it much easier to find out what I think about something until I have written it down and edited it and curated it a bit. And then I can look and think, oh, yeah, that, that feels right now. Um, I feel like I've understood it. So for me, writing and thinking are the same act in, in many ways. And can you tell us a little bit about the relationship of writing these two pieces of work for your PhD? Did you complete the novel entirely before you started the kind of reflective process or was it a diary that went along with the writing and how did it actually support the writing of the novel? It was very much a, um, a process that went hand in hand. Um, I was doing both at the same time so I always had two journals on the go. I ended up filling a great many more, but there were always two on the go at once. And one was kind of creative pieces. So I would take that notebook um, to, to, to places like Westow, to, um, to Cardiff, to the um, Iron Age village that's been recreated there. Um, and uh, you know that would my, be my notebook for sitting and just writing material for the novel itself. Um, and then my, my second notebook was a place for more theoretical research and more reflection. So I was, I was maintaining a diary all the time about how did I feel about the project um, and, the, and the creative decisions that, how did I come to them? Um, and it also included the provocations in terms of its reception. I was reading other writers as well because I was looking at how other bilingual writers have used their multiple languages creatively you know what's that intersection looked like for other people in their writing so so the two notebooks were very much in use at the same time and I was writing the essay in little chunks in just the same way as I was writing the novel in little chunks and I've actually ended up writing I think it had to be 20,000 words in the end and I must have written easily 60,000 words and because I was writing these little chunks of, of thinking and reflecting and considering um, and then ending up having to select from that to, to, to write the final piece. I seriously do want to read that it sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, the story, uh, The Short Knife, has resonance, I think, for today. I mean, it reminds us that we are all immigrants in part, if not whole, in one way or another. Uh, was that a consciousness that you had when you were writing or is it just something that comes up that, that, that the reader recognises, if you like? I was conscious of it. I was, you know, I, I wrote this. I, I was in a in the act of writing um, whilst the Brexit vote, you know, while the campaign was happening and in the aftermath of that, I have long, you know, growing up in, in, in Wales, we, the, the Welsh, I don't know if you know this, but the Welsh for English, it's Saisneg, which just means Saxon. It's the same, you know, Saisneg, Saxon, they sound the same. Um, and so I've always I've grown up thinking of, of our, you know, close neighbours as Saxons from Saxony. <laughs> 
And I think that when we are called English, and of course I live in, I live in England now, I'm perfectly happy um, with my association with England, but when you say English, it doesn't, it haven't, doesn't have that memory in it really anymore. We, 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 we forget where, where the Angles were from and English is, you know, it's slightly detached itself from that meaning. So um, I, I, I've, I have been aware um, of, of the waves of immigration um, that have come into the, to the UK and have used, become used to the idea that we all shuffle up a bit, you know, and we all make room. Um, because that's that's the story of the countries that I have lived in here. So yes, it's very much at the forefront of my mind. I'm just thinking, is that the same then as the Scottish Sassanac? Yeah. The yeah. same route? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm, learned something new today and I love <laughs> the history of language and I didn't know that. So I'm happy. <laughs> Um, we said earlier on that this is very different from anything that you've written before, but I do think for anybody that has read your other uh, stories that they will actually see some connections too. I wondered if you saw any continuations and connections in your own work. I'm always really interested in certain themes that just recur. Um, so, you know, the f friendships between girls I think is something important I've, I've, I've often had kind of sisters or siblings who who love each other but but don't always fit together all the time um and I I think that that you know as I as I said earlier that that idea of trying to tell stories that are quite positive and quite hopeful about people who might otherwise be a little bit more marginalized has been a, a thread i mean my it, these these people are in no sense kind of working class um but that has been my motivation in the past um so i think if there if there was a fifth century working class i'm still telling those children's stories i'm always interested to find out a little bit about uh, the other people that were involved in the writing uh, I know it's very much an individual process, but in your acknowledgements, you acknowledge uh, quite a lot of people, and I wondered how they had supported you through this process. There are a lot of um, of people, yeah. The main group, but it kind of falls into two halves. So, people who helped with the creation of the of the book, and they they're often academics. So. Um, so I, have, I thank all of my PhD supervisors who were, I think, could not have been more instrumental in shaping this. They, they read early drafts. They talked to me about the, the difficulties. They talked to me about, um, you know, theories that I should read and, and other contextual writing. It, it wouldn't have happened without those people. Um, and then the, the second half are people in publishing who have, have taken a risk on, on this book because I don't think it's necessarily um, an easy sell. It's not, for example, you know, set during a time that's studied on the curriculum. Um, I think historical fiction that's, you know, directly connects with the curriculum has a much better chance. Um, but the, the, the people at Anderson saw past all that and yeah, backed me. It's really great. 
I would actually applaud anybody that publishes a historical book that doesn't connect with the curriculum. I know that when I was growing up, historical fiction was my go-to read. And the joy in that was actually meeting periods of history that you didn't study. Mm. Uh, so to actually only be presented with a limited palette of historical fiction, I think is incredibly uh, frustrating. So it's great to have um, a book that doesn't uh, directly connect <laughs> with the curriculum. Um, yeah. I I'm interested to know now, having been through the whole process, you're now Dr. Ellen Caldicott, are you? I am, yes. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> so having done that, is this going to impact the way that you write in the future? It has changed the way I write. I am writing something now um, which is much more, you know, part of my writing DNA in terms of, I've, you know, I've returned to writing for a younger readership. It's more contemporary fiction. So The Short Knife was for me, you know, I had a really strong creative vision for what I wanted to do and I couldn't see it work for anything other than what it became. And I don't know if I'm going to do anything like that again. So now I'm writing something that is much more, yeah, the sort of thing that I am used to doing. But the approach to that has changed. Um, I'm hoping that I've that my my skill as a writer has deepened. Um, I'm really hoping so because it feels as if it has. So. You know, I am thinking about the themes um, in a much more strategic way. I'm thinking about what I want to say and how I want to say it with a bit more certainty than before. And I don't know if that's just because I'm a bit older now, but or, or whether it's the process of, you know, this, this, this reflection and thinking that, that I spent so long practicing. But it does feel different now and it feels more skillful, I think. I hope that's what I'm hoping. Well, Dr. Ellen Caldicott, thank you for joining us in the Reading Corner. Congratulations on uh, the publication of this book, which is very shortly coming up. Thank you for the lesson in Welsh pronunciation. I promise I'm going away to practice. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the Reading Corner it's today. It's been a joy to be here. Thank you ever so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.